Pretty much everyone has been effed up in some way or another. Unfortunately, it's pretty much an inescapable part of existing. We're all effed up in different ways, by different things, and we've all responded differently as well. However, pretty often, the things that eff us up end up being responsible for pretty much who we are today. I'm your host, Josh Anglerfish NG, and you're listening to WFYU. What effed you up? Nostalgia has a weird way of just creeping up on you before hitting you out of nowhere. It can be triggered by almost anything, a sight, a scent, an extended moment of stillness. And so today, we'll be taking a trip down memory lane. Some of us have semi-ironically wished for this time of our lives back. Some of us are glad to have gotten the hell out of there. But, regardless of how you remember your final year of high school, the stress that it brings can prompt some pretty interesting thoughts about grief and empathy. So today we actually have the first guest to the show that I personally do not know. He describes himself as a climbing enthusiast, a bit of a workaholic, and a giant f- nerd. Joseph Jiong, welcome to the show. I-, I can confirm that you enunciate a lot more when you're recording than when you're not. I guess it's a habit that I've picked up. Take me back on a journey to your year 12 experience, because it's something that quite a lot of listeners, I suspect, will be able to relate to. Yeah. See, okay. I have I have not thought about this in a very, very long time. So it'll be, it'll be quite a trek, I guess. Isn't year 12 always a trek? <laughs> well, I mean, for me, at this point, it's been about three years, and it feels like a lifetime. Just so much has changed. Um, I guess... I guess I need a bit of backstory for that, I think. So, I think I... Okay, so I went to Roos, right? Um, and at Roos, there is a certain amount of pressure, but for me, I never felt that in junior school, and particularly in year 11, I didn't feel it. And it was kind of strange, because I did a lot of things, but they weren't necessarily study. And I think I was lucky in the fact that I was able to kind of, you know, um, ad-lib would be the best word, I reckon, kind of ad-lib my way through year 11 without putting too much effort into the academics. Um, I was always very much focused on extracurricular, um, just because that's where I found all my enjoyment from. And looking back, I really didn't think of it as anything particular to a work ethic but i guess um in hindsight i was basically spending most of my time just working on random projects not necessarily because like i was thinking i gotta put on my resume just but just because i really enjoyed them and in particular i really enjoyed um the people that i meet through and 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 the new ideas and, and and um thoughts that i gain as a result of engaging in that but I guess, as happens to everyone, Year 12 hit, and at first, you know how Year 12 is like the the fourth term of Year 11? It doesn't feel like Year 12, you know? Yeah, yeah, the first and, time when you actually enter into Year 12 proper, it, it still feels like you're in Year 11. Yeah, exactly, right? So I was kind of, I was kind of just cruising off that, and, and to be honest, um, term for Year 11 is the way I really think about it. I, was, I did pretty well, like, I talked to Modern History, um, maths, I 
honestly couldn't care less about. But I was in like the the mid seventies and whatnot. But but then there were like, like a couple of factors that started to compound. Um, the first was the accumulation of just all my work, um, because you know regrets of a younger me. Um, I was doing three things simultaneously at, at that stage. So in at the at the beginning of year. 12, end of year 11, I was voted to prefect. So that was number one. Number two, I was also in cadets. At that point, I wasn't actually CEO. And and I'll, I'll get to that in a little bit. But what happened then was I was putting a lot of time into cadets because I was very passionate about the, the kind of ideals and, and thoughts that cadets aspire to. But then also number three, you know, it, it was a huge failure, but it was a very useful learning experience, JA Venture Society which was its its own thing. And so I was looking back, working my f-ing ass off, but then you start to get other pressures coming in. You know, it was sustainable if I worked in those three things, but the problem was that there was other stuff. Um, um, do you mind if I just interrupt to clarify yeah. for a moment? What is JA Adventures? JA Adventures Society. Okay, so there'll be like... You know, ten people from Roos who who um who know what I'm talking about. I think the word got out a little bit, but nobody had any bloody clue what it actually was. So the idea behind it, it was probably the the most ambitious project I did, um, in high school. At that point, I was kind of developing the idea that I really wanted to get into the commerce or some sort of engineering space and. At that point, I was introduced to... It, it's quite comical to think about, but the whole, like, startup scene. Okay, right? so, so the entrepreneurs, that kind of stuff. Yeah, it, it's... I hate talking about it in terms of entrepreneurship. But yeah, that was that was the idea, right? And in particular, JA was a not-for-profit called Junior Achievement. It's quite big in America. And um, basically, it was in the very, very early stages of trying to get anywhere in Australia. Um, and it'd been going for a couple of years, but somehow... Through one connection, through another, through another. It originally wasn't my project, but I kind of ended up co-opting it and, and becoming the person who ran it. And the, the scope of the project was that we create an inter-school sort of network which would provide entrepreneurial education resources. Oh, okay. So you gave people a jumping pad. Yeah, so the idea was that when I was going through it, when I was kind of getting into this scene, there was basically Gen E, Generation Entrepreneur, which was the... Have you ever heard of Initiate 48? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so so that's like three days. And you kind of formulate an idea, but they don't teach you any hard technical skills. They don't teach you much. So the idea was that we were going to go a step further than that. Uh, Junior Achievement was running a Company of the Year program. And the idea was that we were going to disseminate a lot of the ideas, a lot of the, the resources from that directly to schools, which would pr- give give JA a much larger scope with its resources. Because the thing you got to remember is that JA is a multinational not-for-profit. JA Australia had a lot of backing. We could have really gone for that. Um, and, and somehow ended up as, as the person running, running this entire um, organization trying to get it off the ground from scratch. That's a big position of responsibility to be taking in year 12. Yeah. And it couldn't have been worse time because that all kind of agglomerated together at the end of year 11. 
So I came into year 12 kind of going full steam ahead on that project. And then <laughs> the funny thing is that's not even keeping in mind a lot of my the smaller projects that I was working on at the same time. Like at that point, Third Meal was kind of still a thing. We were, we were still, you know, rehearsing, performing. Um, at that point, um, I was also, what else? I was also debating. No, actually, I wasn't doing much else apart from that. But yeah, that was that was sustainable until year 11. And then a, a couple of things happened through year 12, which, you know, you, you start, you, you, you need a certain amount of momentum to keep that going. And the thing is, these are positions of responsibility that you can't necessarily shirk. I was deathly afraid of shirking that responsibility because cadets, obviously the CEO position is something that's that's well respected and and there's a certain expectation of responsibility along with that prefects it's not like you can quit per se and then particularly j venture society i at some point there were like 30 odd people that were involved in it and i was like far <laughs> you know how do you how do you how do you that right how do you um shirk that sort of uh, responsibility, particularly because you're the person who decided at the beginning of year 12 to, to give it a shot and, and just and to take it off the ground and make it into something viable. <sighs> so going into year 12, it was a huge mess. And then um, a couple of things happened. So the, the first thing was I had a couple of people who worked with me quite closely on J Venture Society, and I relied on them to, to, to help with a lot of the workload. The problem is they also started backing off. So I had to, there was a lot of frustration with communication of like, oh, I need this done. They agreed to get it done, and then they, they wouldn't. And then there was this constant cycle because you got to keep in mind that, that what we do affects everybody downstream, right? People are taking their own risk of starting their own mini society or well not mini but their own club at these schools and handing applications to principals so there was a lot riding on it and these people the, the people who i who were at the top with me who, who, who i needed to work with were letting me down at every turn right and then on top of that um there was a breakup which i don't want to get into too much but obviously that that was quite stressful <laughs> to say the least and then on top of that, um, see, I, I was never really close with my parents. They kind of just f***ed off. <laughs> uh, and I don't say that in, in a bad way. I mean that, like, they just kind of gave me the distance because they knew that I was always up to something, always doing some random thing. You were always busy or occupied. Yeah, right? And it's not like these are time wasters. It's not like I'm just playing games all the time. It's it's like genuinely interesting things that have applicable reward skills. But the problem was that everything I just mentioned started taking a toll on my, my studies, as one might imagine. I couldn't just ad-lib through year 12. Um, everybody tries. And so um, that all, that the, my parents started to intervene in, in ways that were probably not very productive and it's it's a bit better now but um you know that that whole asian cultural dynamic and in particular i was never close to my parents because my parents just didn't want to talk about 
themselves and you know there wasn't much that was relatable and in particular there's a lot of well at least there's a lack of conflict resolution ability um would be the way i describe it which is that is this the sort of well you know if you argue with me you're naturally challenging my authority not putting forward <laughs> yeah, exactly, a point right? you know those stupid situations explain something you explain it and then they're like why are you talking back to me? It's like it's okay. <laughs> I'm I'm Asian too, and I'll I'll make the leap to say that the majority of my listeners are probably to some degree exposed to an Asian background. Yeah, and then and then um, and at that point, um, I never really went to a shrink, <laughs> but um, well, actually, I went to a GP during that period one time, um, and then um, well, they recommended that I do go to a psychologist. I never did, <laughs> funnily enough. Um, partly because, well, there was a lot of pressure for me not to, but also because I, I, I couldn't find the time. But yeah, year 12 is a bit of a giant blur. And so on top of being fully stressed out about the obligations that I had, um, I also had to deal with a lot of relationship strain with friends and, 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 and the people around me. And then on top of that, I also had not only the stress of getting bad grades, because no, no, no doubt it was stressing me out, um, but also my parents basically getting angry at me every time I would come home, which is not a fun experience if I do say so myself. And it wasn't particularly helped by the fact that you know the the, um, the Asian mantra of depression's not a real thing, right? Well, like you're not sad, you're just moody. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm, I'm aware you know? of that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Year 12 was a time. And, yeah. Take me back to the beginning of year 12, because you've said that you've taken up a bunch of responsibility. Your relationships with your friends and people who were closer than friends, let's say, were starting to show a bit of strain as well. And on top of that, your parents had now started to intervene in ways that you would not describe as very helpful. Yes. Could you perhaps give me a sort of description of that interplay between you and your parents in that period of time? I think um, in order to, to understand this, I think you kind of need to take a step back because basically my parents are 99% of the time wonderful people. I'm not close to them, right? I don't talk to them. But when we have guests over or when we do strike a conversation, it is great but they are terrible conflict resolution um and particularly my dad if i'm being completely honest um so like like for example right one time in i think it was year seven i was i was doing a lot of swimming back in the day um ironically i was also the most overweight <laughs> when i was doing the most but i i went swimming and then we're walking back, and I don't exactly remember exactly what happened, but I said something. My dad got irrationally angry, and then he drove off and let me stranded in, in the car park at, like, 9 p.m., and I was like, okay, I have literally nothing on me. Um, and then there was an, another incident where... Um, the, you know that thing where parents get angry at your phone? It's, it's funny because they're like, you're not doing things it must be your phone so and blaming then, your lack of productivity dad, on one yeah, thing and then legit there was this one instant where my dad got a new phone for me okay cool wonderful and then about two weeks later he got angry at me got a hammer and then took it out on the phone and it's sort of like what the fuck? and then um 
at another stage, and not particularly batting at 12, and there was an instant where um, a door got destroyed because my dad rammed into it several times and, and completely destroyed it, right? It's, it's, it's not necessarily, like, physically abusive, but it's sort of... Their only resolution for anger is some sort of outburst. Sorry, their only resolution for conflict is some sort of angry outburst directed at, at something. Do you feel um, like maybe some of the stress that you were under during year 12 might have actually spread to them as well? And because they have no way of expressing it, aside from what you just said, so, you know, outbursts of emotion, they, well, bottled it up until it overflowed? I mean, I think the key thing I, I, I need to kind of communicate here is that me and my parents don't communicate much about the things I do. Like, they have no clue what, what I do most of the time. And... Particularly in year 11 and 12, I was very adamant in, in sort of clearing out my own space and being like, this is what I'm doing. This doesn't concern you in any way. Partially because I was busy and I didn't have time to explain every single detail to them. But also partially because they were never interested in the first place, I guess. And so it felt like a, a, a natural extension of that. And so the, the, the takeaway here is that my parents wouldn't have been stressed because they don't know anything, right? It's not like they're like, oh my goodness, Joseph is doing all these extracurricular things. He must be super stressed. I am now also stressed. Like that is not a, a logical deduction that the people generally make, right? It was, it was a case of there is one thing and one thing only that I'm seeing, which is Joseph is constantly busy and he's not focusing on his marks and therefore we must take action and, and like do something <laughs> and to them the only way they can resolve this conflict of like joseph is doing extracurricular things and not studying therefore we must get angry that's sort of like that's sort of like the default ball process that that my parents had during that time like you said it doesn't sound like a very helpful way of resolving the situation no it, it made things worse actually i mean it was very much a feedback loop um in in that in that in that stage of of life so, kind of segueing on from that. Sure. Th there's a couple of things I want to talk about, which is that <laughs> as soon as I saw the podcast, I kind of messaged a page. I was like, yes, I'm super excited for this. Right? I, I love the premise. Um, I'm an avid listener of podcasts. I, I am keen to get involved in any way possible. I'm keen to hear the stories. And obvious, honestly, like the two episodes until now, I have... Um, I don't think enjoy this the correct word because they are a bit morbid, but, but I did, um, do you find them to some degree? Well, I guess to some degree relatable. Yeah. And, and I think the, the, the reason why I was so excited for this podcast is, okay, let's take a look at the ways that society has progressed around treating health 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 issues throughout throughout the years right so sure if you look at the history of cancer survival right and, and we're gonna i'm gonna take this analogy and and take it quite a long way so if you look at the 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 rates of cancer survival um the the thing that it's the thing that's hard for us to comprehend nowadays particularly young youngins like you and hopefully me uh, you know every day i feel like a like a 40 year old man 
<laughs> it's okay. I, I'm a I'm a 2000 baby in my grade, so I I get that feeling very often. Yeah. So you know when when we when we take a look at um, cancer survival rates, they were abysmally low back even 60, 50 years ago, right? And the question is what changed? And obviously what changed is that new treatments came about. But the question then becomes what catalyzed the, the, the advent of new treatments in the first place? And the, the, the premise here is that what triggered it is that cancer was a taboo subject back when cancer survival rates were low. Because the, the problem here is that, well, cancer is going to kill you. So we don't talk about cancer. But then when we start to talk about cancer, we realize that it's not a problem that individuals have. It's a problem that society has, right? And the same goes for Alzheimer's and dementia, right? And we're seeing the change now, right? When we're looking at diseases which cause degeneration of the mind, we're seeing massive amounts of research into Alzheimer's and dementia, right? Because before, it was a case of this is embarrassing. I can't talk about this. If my grandparents or, or, or if my parents have dementia or Alzheimer's, it's going to make other people uncomfortable. But what happened was we as a society all realized this is a common society that we have. And I think the same is starting to happen for a lot of these, these mental health problems. Um, and I'm coming at this from a perspective of, of kind of two opposing perspectives actually so the first perspective is i i i well at least back in the day not so much in yeah yeah so i was talking about alzheimer's so alzheimer's became a lot more research money is in alzheimer's right now and in 10 years we're going to see the fruits of that because 10 years ago it stopped being a taboo topic right because people stopped being embarrassed by the idea that that their relatives were, were so thing brain function because it's not a personal we all realize it was the societal problem. so it moved from being you know up something that was a personal plague i guess to like you know individuals and families where it's just basically a form of death and we went yeah, from looking I... at it like that to looking at it as a societal challenge to prevent said death from said cause <laughs> not necessarily death but an uncomfortable fact, right? Why is cancer uncomfortable? Because it brings about our own mortality. And when we look at our, our, our mortality in the face, it's uncomfortable. When why is, why is Alzheimer's and dementia so uncomfortable? Because we don't like to think about the idea that we're going to lose control of brain function. We're going to lose control of a lot of what it means to be me, right? And so it's not necessarily that we don't like the idea that diseases are going to kill us. It's the idea that there are some things that inherently make us uncomfortable because they attack our sense of self. They attack the idea that, that we will exist in perpetuity in, in the current state. And, and that's a, that's an unsettling uncomfortable idea, right? Like, do you, do you kind of get where I'm, where, where I'm coming from with this? Okay. Yeah. So like, for example, with cancer, it's the idea that it makes us face the fact that we are not permanent. And with Alzheimer's, it makes us face the fact that we are not always going to be, well, permanently the way we are now. Yeah, exactly, right? Okay, actually, let's let's take this back a step. Let's let's take a look at even, for example, like, 
gay marriage, right? Let, let's take that. Let, let's take a step back to something that, that I can talk a little bit more informed, informally about. The idea of homosexuality to most heterosexual people in like 20 years ago was very uncommon, right? Yes. Particularly because the idea was that there was a lot of structured norms around family. So there was a lot of structured norms about how everybody in society is heterosexual. And there is this heteronormativity that, that perpetuates society and it made us uncomfortable. But then we realized, well, one in 10 of us is, a, is, is inclined to not be heterosexual. And we're starting to realize that this isn't just a personal embarrassment. This is something that exists in society. And so we were able to confront the fact that this was uncomfortable. And the society as a whole was able to deal with it. Yeah. And so, then from so that, you had movements advocating for gay marriage, gay rights, etc. Yeah. Right. And why was the idea of homosexuality being a natural thing uncomfortable because it, it attacked a heteronormativity and attacked the, the, the fundamental basis of a lot of people's identity and belief system. Right. And, and so what I'm getting at here is that cancer was taboo. Gay marriage was taboo. Um, Alzheimer's was taboo because it attacks some like core fundamental part of what we think about ourselves. It's not necessarily that we think other people doing it is weird. It's that we think, well, if that's normal, what does that say about me? So taking this back to the idea of um, reminder of what I was segueing from. You were segueing from the. Tangent. You were yeah, that's right, that's fine. So, you were segueing so from was, yeah. The reason why I was excited about this podcast, um, in particular, was that I'm coming at this from from two perspectives. I'm coming at it from one. I talked to, and I I, I, I guess I used to talk to, um, a lot of people with a lot of issues. Now that's not necessarily to say that. They were like, it was a broad range of issues, right? And coming into that, it was, I found it very easy to be sort of open and just frank about a lot of the, the topics that we were discussing, right? And, and I just kind of say things and it was fine. It was in the, in the nature of that conversation, of that personal conversation, it was normal. And I guess I didn't realize that this was an abnormal thing because the problem was that once I started getting into the situation where I was facing a lot of issues, where I was getting kind of dragged down by everything around me, it was very difficult to find someone. Well, actually, I don't think I really did end up finding anyone who who was able to deal with this frankly was able to deal with this and provide sort of the empathy that i was looking for and i think when it comes to what i was saying before about how society doesn't deal with things because they're uncomfortable the reason why i was excited about this podcast is two reasons the first reason is because it's part of a or the shift in how people are kind of looking at mental health. But everything I talked about before about taboos was, was they were all very slow slogs. And some of them are slow slogs in trying to get them to be taboo with the rest of the populace, right? And then secondly, this, this is just another very minute step and a societal lens of, of moving forward and, and advocating for taboo to be rejected right because honestly what i would love is an honest and frank conversation about 
our problems and and for that to be normal right it's it in it's uncomfortable to talk about it but it's only uncomfortable because everybody else finds and as we're starting to to get to the phase where people are starting to become frank with these ideas we get to the stage where we become we as a society build up empathy skills right nobody knows how to empathize with people who are going through because even if we know the feeling we don't know how to deal with that right if, if someone comes to you and they're like i'm really sad and here are the reasons why you're like what the f what am i supposed to do with this right that's like the first thing that goes to your head it's mostly the idea that like you know the problem with being empathetic the reason why empathy is so hard to achieve is mostly because none of us knows exactly how it feels to be the other person and, and even if you do know how it feels to a very large extent right if even if we've been through a similar situation we don't know how to deal we don't know how to empathize right we we know how we feel we don't know how to use that knowledge to help and aid people who are going through similar ideas going back to your idea about taboo right the reason why we find taboo so disturbing is because fundamentally taboo makes us feel like our sense of self is being attacked right we find taboo uncomfortable because we think that by facing taboo we are undoing our identities to some degree. Yeah. The fact is, though, when you confront things that make you uncomfortable, when you look at the way that, say, for example, negative experiences have f***ed you up, what you're essentially doing is taking a taboo and integrating that taboo into your own identity in a way. Because the reason why things that f*** us up are thought of as taboo is because we think they have attacked our sense of self. But when we acknowledge the fact that they are an integral part of ourselves, that taboo goes away. Yeah, no, no, I think I think you hit the nail on the head there, right? The idea is that, or, or at least the idea that I kind of try to, to uphold, and it's, it's worked for me, is, is just the idea that, like, you know, what happened has changed what you are doing now, but you just got to be frank with it. You just go, okay, this is what happened. And just work on self-improvement. It's like you acknowledge the idea, you you confront it. You're like, okay, being frank here, and you you do a lot of introspection. You're like, okay, this is the the cause. This is this is what led to this. This is what led to this. And therefore, it's not enough to just go, okay, I'm going to to work on myself. It's like I need to work on what I'm surrounding myself with, right? And then be frank about that. And obviously, it's it's a trade-off. Like, sometimes it's impossible or near impossible to do something, but, but it's just like owning that, right? And then... <sighs> I feel like I'm going on a tangent here. Okay, okay. Um, I'll, to, re to remedy that feeling, right? So, okay, going back to the main idea that spawned this tangent, the idea that, well, let's say, a big part of modern high school oriented taboo is the the stress that comes with going through year 12 sure so the hardship i guess of going through hsc going through year 12 is the idea that you're under an immense amount of pressure and while you do have a lot of people around you who are going through the exact same pressures it's quite hard to find someone who is affected in the exact same way as you is going through the exact same things as you and who's able to just, I guess, connect with you in a way that you can, and this is going to sound a bit stupid, but 
share in your pain. Yeah, what I'm what I'm trying to get at here is that feeling a similar pain is not a prerequisite for empathy. What is a prerequisite for empathy is understanding the situation, and we're not going to understand the situation if we don't talk about it. There is still some level of and still some level of dealing that you can do with superficial knowledge of, of a situation, even though you've never emotionally experienced it yourself. Is that the sort of treatment that you would have wanted from your friends or family at that time? The, the, I, I don't want to... I, like, like, honestly, I will... Yeah, so I, I would have like deeply appreciated just like people around me kind of being where right so so uh, something i heard very often it's like i when i when i talk to my friends about this a very common piece of feedback i guess i don't know good word but the, the most common piece of feedback is that i didn't know what to do and that's a problem and and if that that's not because they're not empathetic that's not because they're not smart it's because we as a society don't know what to do, right? Right? It's like if someone, like if someone breaks an up, we know what to do, right? If like someone like like it's it's like there are customs and there are social norms built around tragedy that people use as empathy. Right, and that doesn't mean it's a fake empathy, and that doesn't mean it's any less effective. It just means that because it's a societal norm, we're able to express empathy in a way that's effective. And what I'm saying is that we don't have those social norms when it comes to helping people who are sad or depressed. Okay, so you said that with society, we have created certain well stock responses to when other people come to us with matters of personal distress. It's like saying, I'm sorry for your loss when someone talks about a pet or a family member dying, right? So it's the idea that we instinctively freeze up when we're faced with someone else's problems. And because of that, we just fall back on certain things that are done or said really often that we then vomit back out because we don't know how to respond personally. But okay, here's here's the here's the thing though. Let's say that actually no no here's the thing though. Just because they're stock standard response doesn't mean that they're bad responses, right? So stock phrases themselves aren't necessarily the problem. It's just that when we're faced with issues of especially mental health, well, even stock phrases become things that we don't think of as a possible response. Yes, kind of. And at least from talking to people, and at least from my own personal experience as well, when you talk about these things, you don't get a stock response. That's that's the issue. You don't get a stock response. You get okay, right? <laughs> and what or you get something right? like oof, or something yeah, like... exactly, right? It's like the most unhelpful, most unempathetic response that could possibly be delivered, right? Saying, I'm sorry for your loss when someone passes away. Like, there is a social norm of, like, well, if someone comes to you and they deliver this bad news and they're sad, you, like, put your arm around them, you, like, hot, like sit with them, you 
you say I'm sorry for your loss, you you, you help them through it, right? It's like you know that that's the right thing to do. But it's only because we as a society have come to accept that like death is a thing. And therefore we need to be able to deal with the tragedy of death and we need to deal with the the uncomfortable nature of, of death, right? But say for example someone came to you and they're like my mom has Alzheimer's. What do you do? No f***ing clue. <laughs> right? Okay. I feel like responses could be separated into two possible categories in that scenario. Because, unfortunately, Alzheimer's and dementia are starting to account for quite a large portion of age-related illnesses in our society today. Which means that there is quite a high chance that the person you are going to with that is going to have some degree of exposure to dementia or Alzheimer's. So yeah. what I'm suggesting is the response will come from one of two categories of people. Either they themselves have had some exposure to dementia or Alzheimer's and they will react according to that, which is, oh, okay, well, you know... I've experienced something similar. I know some degree of what you're going through and then try to comfort them based off of that and try to and establish a sort of relationship based off of mutually experienced pain. Yep. The other is people who have little to no exposure to dementia or Alzheimer's in their own lives. And those responses can differ wildly. It's yeah. It could be something like, oh, well, you know, they've had some exposure to help forums or an informative ad about what Alzheimer's or dementia is, and therefore they have some degree of knowledge on how to comfort someone who has gone to them with the knowledge that they have a family member suffering from that illness. Yeah. Or it could just be, like you said, a moment of shock and paralysis where they either don't say anything at all or they just respond with, oh, okay, yeah. oof. Yeah, exactly. We, we don't know how to deal with that. Or at least I don't. <laughs> and um, I want to know. But it's not like society is particularly helpful in, in, in expressing those ideas to me. Because up until very recently, they've been fairly taboo. And and people who haven't personally experienced how to interact with those ideas in, a, in an empathetic manner. So yeah. to just give this discussion a bit of a, a bit of a chronological backbone, we've sort of moved from the idea that for certain people, including you and probably some of our listeners, year 12 can be a super stressful period. And in subjecting you to that level of stress, you are put in the position where you want empathy from other people. And I guess from your case, what you were saying is something similar to the fact that you didn't really have anyone to provide you with that sense of empathy and that sure. lack of empathy can be put down to i guess a wider societal problem which is that most of us do not really know the right way of responding to someone who comes to you in a moment of personal distress yeah and is there even a correct response does there have to be one because we have we have stock phrases that we can throw around like the I'm so sorry for your loss. But not all responses have to be verbal. No, but what I'm saying is that even when it comes to non-verbal cues, you don't get much. See, what it, it's like, what I'm saying is that when it comes to 
let, let's take for example back to the analogy where we say um, somebody has lost the and we're trying to understand how to interact with that, right? So the, the response I described to you, which wasn't just saying I'm sorry for your loss, but like, you know, physically comforting, right? That is a nonverbal response. That is also a socially accepted norm on how to deal with this type of news, right? Yeah. But essentially it's like, we don't have the equivalent of that for a lot of things, including a lot of what, what comes down to mental health. And it was very frustrating, um, at least in, in my own personal experience, to, to try and reach out and be like, okay, so, you know, I could use some help right now and um, just not getting anything at all back, right? And it's not like I was closed off. Like, I, it's not like I was trying to, to, like, deal with it myself or anything. I was actively like, hey, you know, I'm not feeling great. And, again, the common response... And, and there wasn't a, a tangible response. And in retrospect, when I talk with those same people, they don't know what the f*** to do. And they had the best intentions, right? They were my, my very close mates, right? They, they were also distressed by the fact that I was kind of, you know, feeling very at that stage. But that emotionality doesn't translate to anything useful is a terrible word, but useful, right? It doesn't translate into anything tangible. Okay, you've hit on an interesting idea there. So digging deeper into the idea of something tangible, right? Would you... Agree. Okay, because the way I think about it, the reason why mental health is such a fiddly thing for us to approach, especially in terms of comforting someone who's struggling with it, is because it's not something tangible. When you suffer from a mental illness, it's almost like you lose a part of yourself, or a part of yourself has either changed or become closed off to you. That is very different to losing something tangible, even something like, say, a family member, because that was a person that you could touch, feel, and and see. Same okay, thing so when you I, lose, I wanna, like... I want to yeah. bring up two points here. So the first point is that in terms of tangibleness, this is a, a kind of tangent um, that, that came off a little bit unexpected. I was talking about the response being tangible. Um, but, but let's go off this, this line of discussion. So the idea is that... Tang like the, the idea behind mental health is that it's an intangible as opposed to the the loss of a loved one which is an in, intangible problem right but no <laughs> no it's not everything is just a matter of how you process losing a loved one is not a tragedy because the physical embodiment of them is six feet below the ground losing someone is a tragedy because now you have to cope with the fact that you are no longer able to rely on on this person or, or rather the communication with that person for emotional support right like losing a loved one, in essence, or, or or any sort of personal tragedy, in essence, is just as intangible as mental health. All and right. so we may be able to deal with grief, right? That's that's the thing we're trying to resolve by comforting, and the the social norm. That's what grief is. What the social norm is targeting, uh, but we don't know how to deal with sadness as a broader concept. 
when you say we can't deal with sadness as a concept, is it sort of we struggle to understand the effect we can have on a person's cause of sadness? No. I think everybody knows. <laughs> if if somebody, you know, texts you on, on Messenger and they're like, I'm not feeling great, and you don't respond. It's not like your logical deduction goes, this is the optimal scenario to make them happier, right? You're not responding, not because you think that this is the optimal play, but because you just you freeze. Know, yeah. Like you don't know what to do. Right. We definitely know what makes people sad or not. We have that level. All right. Do you have a plus, a sort of solution in mind for how people could approach others who approach them in moments of distress? See this, I don't, that that's the, uh, I don't have an answer for you. Sort of. What would you have really wanted in that moment of year 12? Well, even not even in that moment, okay, but throughout okay, that entire I, period. I have, I have some suggestions at least. Um, when I, at least when I was talking frankly with people, the, there are generally two ways to kind of help someone. And there is no person in the world who doesn't like talking about themselves, right? <laughs> it's like, if you ask someone a question, and you know them moderately, but they will answer it pretty much no matter how personal. And if it is too personal, they will tell you it's too personal, and it won't be weird. That's the thing. I, I think a lot of people are scared of going too far. But at least in my experience, if you're gentle, and you're coming from... A place of concern. Nobody takes offense at, at concern for personal well-being. They might be annoyed at some points, yes, sure, but they're not going to be like, F you, go away, right? Or Right? And, fair, fair. And so, kind of the way I've always gone about kind of talking to people is to show that you care. And how do you show that you care? Well, let's take the conversation, right? So, when I'm talking to you, I am showing that I care about this conversation by actively listening <laughs> and responding, right? And you're doing the same thing by taking the ideas that I'm saying and, and summarizing it, right? Yes. And and it's that same basic, basic conversational idea that you can apply, right? It's like, okay, I'm having a problem. Okay, Joseph, what's what's the problem? Okay, this, this, and this. And, and why do you think that? Why? why? And, and it's just like, going on the journey with them and generally what you'll find is that once you are able to go through that process of just saying things most people will find that to be nice and oftentimes a lot of what people are just looking for is like i'm in this period of distress and i want to know that like i can count on you like i want to know that like this is cool you know and just showing that you care about the situation goes a million times further than just saying, okay, or, or freezing up, right? It's showing that, that basic empathy of like, okay, I have no clue what the f you're going through, but can you tell me what's happening? And I'll try my best. In many ways, this is just us as human beings playing off of the thing that makes us human. The idea that we're able to verbally communicate what we're thinking and feeling to other people and it's sort of the urge to verbally confine our problems and be able to voice them out and have them 
repeated back to us just to confirm that it's possible for someone else to grasp the way they sound and therefore some degree of how they feel. Yes, and that was an excellent example of engaging conversation, my friend. <laughs> I really try my best. So the <laughs> so what you probably would have advocated for in that case would be when your friend comes to you in a moment of distress. If you freeze, it's probably not your fault because like, it might be because you genuinely don't know what to do. But try not to freeze. Avoid shutting down the conversation instantly by giving a non-starter response, which is, again, the oh, okay, oof. And oh, we're going to start calling those the three O's in a moment. And then, <laughs> and then inviting them to share their problems but then also engaging with those problems by <coughs> very much so um yeah and then repeating those problems back to them in bite-sized chunks in your own words to show that you have at least gone with them on that spiritual verbal mental journey yeah and the fundamental thing about that going on that journey is that the main barrier isn't because you don't know how to do it. Everybody knows how to have conversation, or at least every well-adjusted person knows how to have conversation. That is very, very good of you to make that <laughs> distinction. Um, but the fundamental barrier that most people come up against is that if you engage in this conversation, you might be like, I don't want to go there, but... It's, it's the idea that you're, you're, just, you're, you're scared that you're not qualified to, to engage in yeah, this conversation to begin and with. And it's not just that. It's like, oh, if I talk about this, I also have some anxiety and some, and some stress, like... This is going to put me in a bad mood because I've, I've talked to people about some pretty bummed out um, a, more times than I would like to have in, in, in the course of events, but bums me out. But over time, this is what I mean by talking frankly, over time you just go like, yes, this is part of what Communicating. people feel. Yeah. You know, this is, and, and the first time is, Second time is hard. The fifth time is hard. The tenth time, is hard. but you know, it's you just gotta. It's it's the same as every skill in life. It's the same as social life. Same as study. It's the same as everything. You just gotta do it a lot, and eventually, you will get better at it. As Joseph said, practice makes perfect, and empathy is no exception. Perhaps you yourself have been guilty of using the three O's as a response to a friend in need, and if so, hopefully you now have the tools never to make that mistake again. Thank you for listening to this podcast, and we hope you'll hear from us next week.